If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Well, this is a different Thanksgiving, and the, another of the yet different things about this Thanksgiving week is that Black Friday is more like Cyber Monday in many places. Depending on where you are, stores may be open as usual, or you may be lined up six feet apart, which makes the line longer, or the store may have to bring things out to you that you order on the phone or internet, or may just be ordering on the internet, period. Helping us sort through the deal and tips and how to negotiate all of this and making sure that you're buying into something that's more help than hype is Ashley Esqueda, the senior editor at CNET. Ashley, good to have you with us. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm in fact, Well, thank you for being here. Is there any real difference this year between Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Never mind the fact that some people started Black Friday sales two weeks ago, which is totally confusing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's Black November this year, right? So it's because we can't all cram into a store on one day. They're just letting the deals roll all throughout the month, which actually is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, it's not a bad thing at all. But um, when Cyber Monday comes, I'm just wondering what the difference will be or will there be? I don't think there'll be a difference. I think I think it's just, uh, we, we. I think retailers are thinking we've had a very rough year and they just want to sell stuff. And so it's going to end up being a, a little more of the same. So uh, again, I, I think that's a great thing for consumers. Um, I think a lot of retailers this year have already announced, uh, even uh, before the pandemic really kind of got its uh, its tendrils into uh, the U.S., it sort of uh, the retailers had announced they were going to close on Thanksgiving Day. So we had already sort of seen a little bit of a shift there. And then the pandemic sort of went into overdrive. And now everybody is saying, hey, like, maybe let's just all shop online this year. And, it, and with cases increasing, it seems like that is going to be your best bet. And as a bonus, as a person who loves deals, I love being able to shop at multiple stores all at the same time. So when this started, it was a little bit of everything, though TVs were often the big come on. Now it seems like tech in general, phones, computers, what have you, has become the big Black Friday draw. 
I think you're right. It definitely has been, you know, we, we've we seen time and time again, we see those really big television doorbusters to try to get people in the door, so to speak. Uh, but now they don't need to get people in the door. You still see those great TV deals, uh, but everyone can be online and, and there is no limit on how many people can uh, be in a store, quote unquote, at any given time. So um, you'll still see those really big deals to get you to come to the website, uh, but you're going to see all kinds of tech deals. And I, I agree with you. I think this is the big thing every year. People are looking for a way to save money on those uh, little more expensive items. And usually that does involve technology. So you brought up a point when you said you love to shop from store to store. And since every site has its own Black Friday deals, whether it's, you know, Amazon or a computer maker or Newegg or Best Buy or, you know, whatever, how do you actually shop and compare? You know, nobody likes to say, oh, I got to jump on that because there's only 30 minutes left and then find out that they could have gotten a much better deal on a different site. How does somebody negotiate this stuff? It is tough to negotiate because you, you are right. There are a lot of different deals happening all at the same time and all on different websites. Um, but just like your regular shopping on Black Friday outing that you would go on, it's just a matter of planning. So a lot of these websites already have uh, their weekly flyers that you can look at. They're online. We have them up on CNET.com. We also have a best uh, Black Friday deals available right now that is constantly being updated by our editors. And then, um, you know, it's a matter of sort of planning your day, right? So you say, okay, like if today's going to be my shopping day, then I'm going to do my best to find, you know, these three items or these these things that I really, really want, and I want to make sure I get a good deal on them. Uh, but yeah, it's just a matter of planning in advance. And we definitely have that over on CNET.com. We've got every single major retailer's Black Friday items uh, that are going to be on sale on actual Black Friday, but also anything that's happening right now. Like you said, it's it started much earlier than usual and uh, because it's online. And it's a really great way to sort of score a deal without the added stress of having to get it done within a one hour period of time right after Thanksgiving. So Ashley, are there any especially good things that we should be looking for either, you know, new tech or great updates or something that it would, is really worth getting? Well, you mentioned TVs and even if it's online, there are still some really good TV deals to be had. Uh, right now, Best Buy has a 55 inch TCL TV that is under $200. And Walmart, uh, I think they might be sold out at this point, but it has been popping up and then coming back offline as it sells out, but they've been restocking. They have a 55-inch 4K TCL TV for $150. So if you're really looking for that big doorbuster, that would be that would definitely be one. Um, and then also another thing that we've seen that has been really popular in the past few years are the uh, the DNA kits, 23andMe, Ancestry DNA. And Ancestry DNA kits are down to just 59 bucks. So um, we usually see those at around $200, uh, depending on the company. So they are deeply discounted this year and um, and something that people really like to give to family members. So we uh, we, we think that's really kind of cool. Yeah, though I, I, you probably have to be careful with giving DNA kits to family members. You know, maybe you find out something like they're not family members. <laughs> that's, that's a, oh, that could be a can of worms. Yes, exactly. Well, you might as well just send mom a you know, can of worms. But 
when I was talking earlier about buying somebody tech, and I, I mentioned, you know, getting something for mom, one of the things you have to deal with is how comfortable people are with privacy issues. You know, some people, it's like, hey, it doesn't matter, I gave up on privacy ages ago. You know, some people, you get them, say, an Echo, and then it starts to talk to them and do things that they didn't know it could do. And, you know, some people get a little freaked out. That is that is very true. And people, um, I know I'm very much uh, in the camp of I like to protect my privacy. Uh, again, I think it's just a matter of sort of having that conversation with the person you want to give that gift to. Uh, if you if you know them well enough, you probably have an idea of their feelings about it. Um, I do know that, uh, you know, a lot of the voice assistants, they do cause a little bit of anxiety for people who are concerned about privacy. So um, it might be a good idea to maybe look at another option. So maybe something that isn't a virtual assistant that needs to listen in your home. Uh, you can always look into, uh, you know, audio solutions, like just a plain old speaker, a nice Bluetooth speaker that doesn't have a voice assistant in it. Uh, you could always look into other things like universal remotes, things they, they can use in their home, but not necessarily with a voice assistant attached to it. Okay, final thing. Is there anything that, as alluring as it seems, I should not buy, where the price may be cheap because there's something coming out in the next few months or in the next year that's just going to totally supplant this, and I should really wait for that rather than, you know, get get the deal now? I think for me, I would say you're going to see a lot of really, really inexpensive 1080p TVs this year. Uh, because 4K is everywhere and it is very inexpensive compared to what it has been in previous years, as TVs often do. They come down in price every single year. Um, and that technology is really kind of outdated at this point. So even if you see a really great deal on a 1080p TV, uh, it's $100, you know, it's a doorbuster, uh, know that that is to, again, get you on the website um, and if you might be regretting it, if you're buying any other technology, like a new console, for example, if you're getting a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X, uh, you're going to want to be able to use that console on a current gen television. Um, so I would say TVs, like outdated TVs is definitely uh, a thing that you would want to look out for. And maybe maybe just spend a couple extra bucks to get that 4K upgrade this year. Yeah. And as a final thing, if you are buying a brand that you've never heard of, it may be the hot new thing, but you might want to check out product support. Kind of get around to see whether that's something that's you know still going to be around in a year or two and if they're going to support it, if you have any problems, because that's always a bad feeling. Definitely. And of course, you can always head over to CNET.com and check out all of our technology product reviews. We have a great editorial team who is dedicated to making sure that you don't buy anything like that. So head on over to CNET. We've got a, a huge holiday gift guide. We've got a, as I said, a constantly updated list of best Black Friday deals. We've got all of the major retailers. All that information is in one convenient place for you, and you guys can check that out. All right. Ashley Esqueda is senior editor at CNET, and I'll let you go now to get back online and do some buying. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
Of course, you know Uncle Sam, long one of the cherished symbols of the United States. But have you heard of Aunt Sammy? For several decades, she was one of the most popular people on the radio, heard coast to coast before most stations even had a network hookup. She dispensed recipes, homemaking advice, and a kind of down-home wisdom that listeners loved. She was also responsible for one of the most popular cookbooks in America. All very impressive for somebody who didn't really exist. And to explain the story behind the woman who guided many families through their daily lives, including the Thanksgiving meal, all during the 20s and 30s, we turn to Justin Nordstrom, who is Associate Professor of History and the editor of Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes, the original 1927 cookbook and housekeeper's chat. Justin, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing great, Gil. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so who was Aunt Sammy, or more to the point, who wasn't she? You're exactly right. So Aunt Sammy is a character in a radio program, but she was not a real person. Uh, She was created by the Bureau of Home Economics of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that's the USDA, in order to promote one of the nation's earliest radio programs, which was called Housekeeper's Chat. And this went on the airways starting in 1926. And as you pointed out in your intro, uh, she is related to, she's the sister of the iconic Uncle Sam. Uh, But even though she was fictional, Aunt Sammy was actually created, and the recipes she promoted were created, by real women and recipe testers at the USDA in Washington who sent scripts to radio stations throughout the country. Now, this is an interesting period in American history because there's a need for this kind of information because the country is electrifying. There's all kinds of new inventions for the home coming in at this time. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, uh, the radio itself is really uh, at its infancy in most American homes. And what Aunt Sammy does really skillfully is that she uses one technology, which is radio, to act as an ambassador to a whole host of other household technologies that we today take for granted. Things like linoleum flooring or rayon fabrics. Her recipes, in fact, encourage people to rush out and get an electric waffle maker so that you can make your breakfast in the morning. And so she's the USDA and their character of Aunt Sammy are really creative in using multiple technologies in order to create the idea of what they called in the 1920s, the modern home. Now, this sounds really basic, but in a way, it was responsible for how popular Aunt Sammy became, because instead of having one woman be Aunt Sammy, of course, this is before tape, and this wasn't, you know, a live network broadcast or anything, and... I, you know, they didn't have most of the tools we had, even, you know, electric uh, transcriptions, which basically records to send out to stations. They would send out scripts and every radio station would have their own Aunt Sammy. But I guess that's one of the reasons it was so popular, because everyone, they heard people speaking in the accent of their part of the country. That's exactly right. Um, and it means that we don't have a single voice for this program. And even though the program was tremendously popular, it's on more than 200 radio stations uh, by the end of the 20s. Um, there is, you're right, there's no single voice. There is no one Aunt Sammy. Um, and that means that even though the recipes and the content were identical, each of the accents and inflections behind Aunt Sammy's voice would change from one place to another. It's also part of a sad thing because i know our listeners are going great let's hear one of these radio broadcasts and hear what they sounded like but again this was before tape there were no recordings because these were just local people doing these so even though this was on more than 200 stations five days a week from the mid-20s into the early 30s we don't have any recordings of her not that i've been able to find no um you're you're exactly right 
Um, but what we do have is not only her uh, interesting programs with her supporting cast of characters and the, I almost think of it as a radio soap opera, that's the, the story behind Housekeeper's Chat, but we do also have the companion books. There were cookbooks called Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes that were set out because listeners liked the radio programming so much, but they ran into a problem because the popularity of, of this broadcast made it so that the USDA could not keep up with all the requests for recipes. And people listening in were trying to scribble down the recipe as it was being read over the air, but they didn't get all of the details right. So they would write into their local stations they were getting overwhelmed with requests for recipes. So eventually the USDA put together this tremendously popular cookbook to go along with its popular radio program. And again, part of the popularity is not just that it's in the local accents, but this wasn't just straight recitation of, of recipes. I mean, she was a character. Even though everybody from different parts of the country were reading these scripts, they were written to make her sound like this this real character of a neighbor. Yes, and she has she tells jokes. She has these witty stories. Uh, she has a supporting ensemble, so she tells stories about her three kids or her uncle Ebenezer. She has this ongoing gag where her next door neighbor is always burning things in the kitchen and running into problems and urgently rushing in to ask for the help of Aunt Sammy, who of course passes on the wisdom of the USDA in saying how to best prepare everyday foods. So you're right that what made the show appealing was that Aunt Sammy was the centerpiece of an entire cast of people that would make the show both informative, but also entertaining. Okay. You have found some transcripts of these things, you know, tucked away in some historical libraries. And mm -hmm. do you have any of like the kinds of things that she would say to give us kind of a taste of this? I have found one or two. Sure. I'll I'll share my favorite one, which actually comes from Thanksgiving, and uh, but it represents the type of comedy that would be present every single episode. There is a story that Aunt Sammy told where uh, a, a young girl is preparing Thanksgiving dinner for her family, and she uh, says, well, I have all the information. I have a recipe right here. And she shows up with a, a needle and thread in order to baste the turkey, which not only means to you know, sort of soak it in its own juices, but to sew basting as a type of sewing stitch. So she's sitting there with a needle and thread trying to sew up the turkey while the rest of her family is looking on, you know, kind of embarrassed for her that she's misread this direction in the recipe. So uh, that's an example of a kind of, you know, humorous little aside or joke that she would toss in to, you know, include amongst her recipes for a Thanksgiving menu. Yeah, I found a, a couple of one was Queen Marie of Romania is visiting my town this week. She didn't come to America, especially to see me, but I thought she might drop in to discuss household problems. I have a new recipe called Peach Dainty that I've been saving for her. I'm sure the king would like it and the prince and princess, too. I mean, this is really more sitcom material than just a straight what you would expect from the United States Department of Agriculture. No, you're, you're exactly you're exactly right. It was meant to uh, be entertaining and funny um, and to provide recipes and, you know, how hold tips at the same time. A little bit of, of early women's lib here, too. I found another one that says, by the way, some of you have begun to listen in quite recently. You may not have copies of the Loose Leaf Radio cookbook Uncle Sam is sending to homemakers. I want to give Uncle Sam all the credit due him, but the cookbook was not his idea at all. After all, he saw how neat it was and how easily extra pages could be added. He waxed enthusiastic. He really did. His only regret was he didn't originate the idea himself. Isn't that just like a man? 
Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that the um, uh, you know the comments on gender were so interesting, especially because the two women that created Aunt Sammy were themselves truly exceptional. They were they were college educated, career driven women uh, at a time when that was exceptionally rare in the 1920s. Yeah, and there's also things that you know made me think about other things that are in the popular culture this time of year. I found one thing where she mentions garlic is eaten by respectable people. Just just trying to drive that home, and I thought, well, wait, what is that? And then. I remember that thing from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, where the evil banker is talking about the Italian immigrants who are buying nice homes from the Baileys instead of renting slums from the banker. And he talks about them as a bunch of garlic eaters. And it's like, oh, okay. So making garlic respectable was part of, you know, like pushing back against this anti-immigrant and this is what they eat thing. It was just an interesting thing to find in here. Yeah, it, you're right to say that there's a culinary and there's a cultural aspect of that. The culinary aspect is that you know, garlic was not as prevalent as it would be today. But you're right to say that the, the bigger story there has to do with when she says garlic is a respectable spice. She, you know, by extension means that, you know, people that use garlic are respectable human beings. I think that's a good observation. Now, here's the weird thing. This show is incredibly popular. Over 200 stations, five days a week. The cookbook goes into printing after printing after printing. And then around 1934, the show goes on, but Aunt Sammy vanishes. The USDA suddenly abandons the best public relations person they would ever have. True. Yeah. And they don't give it an on-air explanation for it. They don't create some sort of story where Aunt Sammy goes on a a long trip or something. No, they just stop mentioning her by name. And um, we don't have a definitive reason for that, but my guess would be uh, that it just like you mentioned before, it has to do with the with the times. So by the 1930s, uh, not only is it the Great Depression, but we're starting to see uh, the rise of fascism in Europe. And if Aunt Sammy and her witty storytelling, you know, joke slinging persona might be out of step with the times, if listeners heard this alongside, say, FDR's fireside chats. So I think that it's more a reflection of uh, the the difficulties going on in America in the 1930s, which makes Aunt Sammy, as one person put it, uh, a jazz age Julia Child. That's what a later reviewer of her cookbook said. And I think that's appropriate given that uh, by 1934, the jazz age is a memory. So interesting. And so interesting to bring back somebody who was so, so popular and now forgotten. It's a great story. Justin Nordstrom is associate professor of history and the editor of Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes, the original 1927 cookbook and housekeeper's chat. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The story of the first Thanksgiving is more of legend than fact. In another segment in this broadcast, we have the story of the Pilgrims. But now we look at the story of the Wampanoag tribe, which had been living in what became the Plymouth Colony for 10,000 years before anyone came over on the Mayflower. David Whedon is Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. David, it's good to talk to you. When we talk about the Native Americans at that feast, that is the basis of the Thanksgiving story. The tribe itself is rarely mentioned by name, despite the thousands of years they had been there. Can you tell us anything of the history of the Wampanoags? We have to put things in proper context when we tell, talk about the history. And a lot of the history has been distorted and sugarcoated to reflect that it was this happy time and, and welcoming of the 
colonists to the New World by the Native Americans here in Massachusetts. And uh, that's been perpetuated for years. I know when I was going to school, that was what was taught. And my parents were very active in advocating for Native civil rights and telling a more accurate history. So they used to make sure that we went to school and told them that those things weren't true. And <laughs> it wasn't always well received by the teachers. Um, the students usually were more sympathetic to the accuracy that I, I tried to educate them on. You know, prior to the Mayflower arriving, there had been different uh, Europeans that were coming over for years prior. A lot of those people would come over and capture natives and take them back and sell them into slavery. Sometimes some of the expeditions would come and, and actually trade with Native Americans, many of which were here in Massachusetts. And with that, back in 1616, there was a, a pandemic where yellow fever was introduced through trade and blankets and things that decimated whole populations and whole villages, uh, whole tribes in some cases, many of which here in Massachusetts. And it, that yellow fever, because we didn't have immunities to those types of things, it really devastated our Wampanoag population. Uh, some of the estimates are uh, roughly from a population of 60 to 75,000 was dwindled down to roughly a third of that. And so around 20,000 people. You know. Well, David, let's let's get into some of the particulars of this. The Europeans have been coming over since 1524, and the relationship kind of starts off okay. The tribe had beaver pelts to sell. The Europeans, first led by Captain Thomas Hunt, invited a number of men, including Tisquantum or, or Squanto, to come aboard and select things they wanted to trade. But then... He double-crossed them. Uh, he kept them on the ship, took them to Spain to sell as slaves. And before the pilgrims ever get there, there's no reason to trust these these settlers coming from Europe. Correct. And that's kind of what I was leading to is that, you know, uh, European contact was associated with death. And most natives were apprehensive, uh, to say the least, in engaging them. Also, word had traveled that they were capturing uh, our men and taking them back as slaves. So folks are, are familiar with uh, Tisquantum. And there was another gentleman, Epinal, that was taken into slavery uh, by the Europeans coming over. He also made it back. He had tricked them into believing. He understood that uh, they appreciated gold. And he actually led them to believe that there was this uh, huge amount of gold over here. And he, he was from the... Uh, Nauset tribal belief out in the East Ham area. When he came back, he got them to bring him back to show him where the gold was. And when he got close, he was able to escape and jumped overboard. And warriors from his tribe uh, inundated the ship with arrows and things, forced them to flee. Um, so he was able to get over here. He had picked up some of the English language as well. Yeah, there was a there was a, like another incident. Captain uh, Thomas Dermer told the story of another English captain inviting. Wampanoag aboard ship and then shooting them for no reason. Dermer himself was later killed in a revenge killing uh, on Martha's Vineyard by, by tribesmen. Plus, as you say, when these people are able to come back to the tribe, uh, either by escaping, as, as Squanto did, with the help of uh, a, an actual couple of friars who were upset by all of this, although the rest of the tribesmen who were taken slaves were, were never seen again. Uh, or by tricking them into saying there's gold here, they come back and they find the yellow fever had wiped out, as you say, most of the tribe, and there were piles of bones everywhere. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. This is all before the pilgrims ever even show up. The natives were very apprehensive to, to engage with these uh, strangers, and, you know, death and destruction was what was associated with them. So 
when they, the Mayflower finally did arrive in 1620 out in the East Ham area, then we didn't, we didn't welcome them. We observed them and saw that they were actually raiding burial and storage pits um, where we typically would bury our food for uh, when we returned to our summer camps in the, in the spring. And, you know, they were raiding these things. So we chased them out of the East Ham area and then they set sail and went around the Cape and landed in Patuxet where that tribe had had been devastated by the yellow fever prior. They associated the, all these cleared fields and things where this tribe had been living. They saw that as uh, their God uh, clearing the path for them to, to arrive. But again, the Native Americans in the surrounding area were apprehensive and did not engage uh, right away. So how in the world does that relationship get us to the Thanksgiving feast? That's next on the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to Steve Whedon, an historian of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, which was the group of Native Americans that sat with the pilgrims for what we call the first Thanksgiving. And we heard that for almost a century before the pilgrims came, relations with the Europeans they had met had been terrible. Explorers, traders, would-be settlers had been murdering members of the tribe or taking them as slaves. And despite all this, the Wampanoags are still willing to talk peace with these new people, in part because, weakened by the yellow fever, they're being attacked by the Narragansett tribe, and they're trying to survive. And also, on the Pilgrims' part, they were completely unprepared for a New England winter. Many of them have died. So that first Thanksgiving is more kind of like almost a political coming together for for each side's own survival. The Narragansetts and the Wampanoags were, um, you know, they had skirmishes, especially along territorial boundaries, where the Wampanoag at that period of time held west the Blackstone River as the uh, western boundary, the eastern shore of the Narragansett Bay and the Providence River was considered a boundary. And then, you know, the Cape and Islands, all of southeastern Mass, uh, the Merrimack to the north was part of Wampanoag area where we all spoke the same language. With that, you know, the skirmishes between the Narragansetts, there was, uh, uh, you know, tension between them. We had been decimated. Uh, roughly two-thirds of our population was uh, taken out by the yellow fever and you know, because of that, um, we did need to make alliances. It was a strategic move, but that first treaty was signed in the spring of 1621. So it was after they first arrived, several months after they first arrived. Uh, it, it wasn't done right away. In that time, surrounding natives would observe them and see how they were making out. But it, it wasn't like they te teach in the books where we stood on the shore and, and welcomed them with open arms. That That's very much not the case. I would imagine that there'd be a lot of controversy within the tribe about whether to trust these people who had attacked and enslaved them. I mean, this is that this must have been kind of almost like the divisive politics that we have in the country today. Uh, just deciding, well, yeah, maybe better for us for survival, but on the other hand, can we trust them? The other side, maybe even having the same conversation. This is this is really a matter more of power politics than it is anything else. 
effect. And, and that decision had to be weighed very heavily amongst the tribes. In our way, the Sachem Massasoit, that wasn't a name, that was a title. The Massasoit is the supreme leader of the nation. So he would he would go into council with all his advisors and, and people that he confided in, uh, which would be other chiefs and spiritual leaders. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure it was a very difficult decision to make to approach and align themselves with the uh, folks from Plymouth Colony and the Mayflower. But it was a strategic move to preserve. They, you know, they, they were observed uh, with having brought over their women and children. And we realized that, you know, they, they were setting up camp and they weren't trying to leave. They were actually establishing themselves in the Patuxa area. So we decided to align with them. And, you know, the ships kept coming. More and more of them continued to arrive and, and, and grow. This all goes you know, relatively well for a while, but within 50 years, it ends in King, what's called King Philip's War, which is, in terms of percentage of population, one of the bloodiest wars in American history, even though it's one of those wars that you never hear about in school. The first 50 years, it was a peace, peaceful time after they signed that treaty in 1621. Uh, 16, and under Massasoit, they were able to keep good relations and, and, and help each other. But come 1675, Massasoit had died and his son, his son, Metacomet, had taken over as the leader and uh, spokesperson for the for the Wampanoag Nation. You know, in the 50 years, they saw that the the colonists, uh, there was a lot of untruth and they didn't uphold their ends of the bargain. And they continued to encroach upon Indian territory. There was a constant conflict. The dealings where they did interact and uh, was very one-sided where courts uh, did not rule in favor of the natives. Uh, they typically always ruled in favor of the uh, Europeans and, you know, impeded upon our, our, our cultures, our, our traditions, our, our way of life, and was constantly imposing new sets of laws and things that they expected uh, Native Americans to adhere to. And that tension grew to the point where they, and it resulted in the King Philip's War, which was the bl bloodiest uh, war on record in, in, in the United States. You know, the, obviously the backstory on all of this, uh, we could go on for more than we have time for, but this story ends up being told in a one-sided way because the Thanksgiving story was called mainly from European sources, so we get a one-sided version. So going back to where we started, you're a kid in school, and Thanksgiving is being taught one way, and you know some of this back history, and you said that some of the students were sympathetic and, and wanted to hear this, but the teachers not so much. What was that like for you, and what was it like for other members of the Wampanoag tribe in school? So there was constant tension because, um, like I said, my parents brought us up in a way that, you know, don't just uh, believe everything the teachers are telling you, you know, question, question them on, on, on things. And so in doing so, you know, there was often times where, you know, <laughs> I'd actually get in trouble for, um, you know, arguing or disrupting the classes, they put it, um, you know, and not allowing the teacher to, um, tell things the way he had been uh, instructed or he had learned. And 
you know, so oftentimes my parents, I, I would uh, go back and tell my parents and they would end up um, uh, asking and scheduling a meeting to talk with the teachers and then they would engage with them and explain things in more clarity, uh, you know, from an, an adult perspective. And, you know, there, there was always reluctance to um, take them for their word. Um, you know, they, they, they would always state that, you know, these are cited uh, materials that they learned from and, you know, they were educated and had degrees and things. But, uh, you know, perpetuating misconceptions and mistruths um, it does nobody justice. Um, if you're going to tell history, then it should be done accurately um, to depict the, the, the full picture of what actually happened. A lot, of, a lot of history has been romanticized and swayed to the side of the colonists and, and the Europeans that uh, everything thereafter was not done in the best interest of keeping good relations or observing the intricacies of Native culture that had been sustained for thousands of years, the way of life that was here. David Whedon is Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe. And David, thank you for being with us and for people to hear the other side of the Thanksgiving story. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me and uh, allowing us to tell our side of the story and, and clear up a lot of the misconceptions. The years that followed were very oppressive. And, you know, even today we still fight for our Aboriginal rights and hunting and fishing and our ability to sustainably live in our own way and fighting for self-governance as well after 400 years. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Thanksgiving. So, can you feast and still eat well? The person to ask is quite obviously Eating Well Editor-in-Chief Jesse Price. Jesse, good to have you with us. Gil, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I try to eat well year-round, but often around the holidays, eating well means, well, I ate it. A lot of holiday feast food before we get to dessert is is actually quite healthy, though. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Especially at Thanksgiving, where there's so many great vegetables from, you know, sweet potatoes, squash, Brussels sprouts, green beans that are a part of a typical Thanksgiving menu. And I always, you know, I, I always remind people Thanksgiving is one day, even if you do feel like you eat a little too much. It's just one day. It's not the end of the world. And the important part is, you know, we also have to enjoy ourselves. Exactly. And the easy part is just feast on Thanksgiving and then, you know, don't eat for three weeks. <laughs> so because of the virus, we're going to have many people usually travel to the house of somebody who can really cook, who are going to be making their their first real Thanksgiving. What do they need to know? And should they try to recreate a classic Thanksgiving or just stick to easy stuff? So we are expecting that first time cooking is going to be a big thing this Thanksgiving and for the other holidays. Um, we've seen a 108% increase in views of articles about beginner cooking over the past month compared to 
last year, the same time. You know, I think some of them are going to want to experiment and try new things. And of course, being the editor of a food magazine, I'm always encouraging that. But a lot of people are going to look to um, those old traditions that they know from their family. They're going to be calling home, asking for grandma's recipes so that they can make those classic dishes, even if they're not able to all be together you know, at the holiday. In terms of drinks, we've got wines and beers covered in other segments of this special, but a lot of people, because of the time of your turning to cocoa, I'm hearing about, you know, some new things like, you know, Costco's hot cocoa bombs. Suddenly I'm hearing about, I don't even know what those are. <laughs> okay. So the hot cocoa bomb is a phenomenon right now. It's basically like a chocolate shell on the inside is cocoa mix and then mini marshmallows and potentially other stuff like, uh, you know, decorative things like sprinkles or whatever. You put the ball of chocolate, so it's a hollow ball, you put it into hot milk, it melts. And then when it melts, it bursts open and the cocoa, the, the cocoa mix comes out. So you stir and it turns into hot chocolate and those little marshmallows come out and they sort of, you know, explode or flower out of the bomb. We actually just developed a recipe for hot cocoa bombs on eatingwell.com too, because it's really one of these things that just like whipped drinks this summer went crazy. Hot cocoa bombs are the drink of the moment. Interesting. Who'd have thunk it? But it sounds like one of those drinks with all that stuff popping out that take grandma's tablecloth off the table first. <laughs> Maybe you want to do that outdoors around your fire pit. <laughs> that sounds absolutely perfect with s'mores, just kind of chocolate and marshmallow yourself to death there. All right. Jesse Price is the editor-in-chief of Eating Well. Happy Thanksgiving, Jesse. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Thanksgiving special on the CBS Audio Network. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.